0: Hey, this is Dr. Gray, and I want to interrupt this podcast because I am thrilled to announce that my book, The Pre-Med Playbook, Guide to the Medical School Interview, is hitting bookshelves on June 6th, 2017, and I'm giving away a copy to 50 lucky winners. Also, if you pre-order a copy today from Barnes & Noble and submit your receipt to me, I will give you lifetime access to our 13-part video series on the medical school interview and one-month access to our brand new amazing mock interview platform starting whenever you want that's almost a hundred dollars worth of our products for pre-ordering the paperback book from barnes and noble text the word pre-order to 44222 again pre-order to 44222 and i'll give you instructions on how to enter the contest and how to submit your receipt the pre-made year session number 228 Hello and welcome to the two-time Academy Award-nominated podcast, The Pre-Mid Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. I'm excited to welcome Cram Fighter. As the newest sponsor of the pre-med years. If you've listened to this show for a while, you may have heard the founder of Cramfighter come on to talk about it back in episode 195. Cramfighter helps you create the perfect study plan for you in just minutes. Keep listening to this episode and I'll tell you a little bit more about how Cramfighter can help you crush the MCAT and I'll even give you a special coupon code just for you. And welcome back to the pre-med years. If this is not your first time here. If it is your first time here, welcome. Thank you for joining me here today. I have an exciting episode for you today, one that I think will help you as you go through your pre-med journey. I'm going to be talking to a student that I worked with through the application process and helped her ultimately gain an acceptance to medical school, but she struggled uh, she struggled with her self-doubt along the way. And we're going to talk about how that affected her and and what she recommends for you to overcome that as she ultimately did. So let's go ahead and dive right in. Mariah, welcome to the pre-med years. Thanks for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: When did you know you wanted to be a doctor?
1: You know, I... um. I, I provided a much more truncated version in my application process and interviews, but I've known for a while. Uh, the it, I think I've known I wanted to be in the healthcare realm since I was a kid. I kind of watched my grandmother, who was a registered nurse, uh, care for my grandmother and uh, and myself. I had asthma really bad when I was younger, um, but overall, in my family, we had a number of healthcare professionals, nurses, and phlebotomists and things like that. So I was kind of always interested. Um, and then when I was younger, I, I, I actually thought women couldn't be doctors uh, for, for a while. Why? And because all of the nurses I knew were women and all of the doctors I knew were men. And it was just kind of the default. Um, that's what I saw growing up and just never imagined. Uh, well, never for, you know, at least the first several years of my life (laughs) imagined that women could be. And. Actually, one day I was uh, at a follow-up doctor's visit with my grandmother, and a woman walked in. And she started asking us all these questions, which we had already answered uh, when you know the the nurse had been in before. And I kind of interrupted. I've always, I guess, been somewhat precocious or curious, or I I, I would ask questions whenever they they struck me. And so I kind of interrupted and was like, "We already answered these questions. When is the when is the doctor coming in?" <laughs> And she and my grandmother just started laughing uh, hysterically. And she was just like, I am the doctor. And of course, I felt foolish. But also, I was like, oh, my goodness. Like, I've never, ever. And I had had a lot of doctors. I had asthma and allergies and eczema really bad. So I'd been to pulmonologists and allergists and dermatologists and, and everything. And uh, yeah, it, 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 was, uh, it was a surprise to me.
0: And how old were um, you at that point?
1: I mean, I was probably like maybe eight. Seven or eight, something and like where,
0: that. Where Where did you grow up?
1: At this time, I was in Kansas. Actually, I was in Wichita, Kansas. Okay. And uh, but I grew up in, in Kansas and then in Oklahoma. I moved to Oklahoma when I was around ten, uh, and that's where I graduated from high school. From was in northeast Oklahoma. Uh, but my my father still lives in Kansas, and I've got a bunch of aunts and uncles and cousins that are there. So yeah. I'm back in kansas oklahoma and texas as well i've got my mother lives in texas so i'm in the area at least once a year in all of those states
0: yeah so you you grow up with bad allergies and asthma and and your grandmother's a nurse and you have all of these female i don't know if you'd call them role models at this point that you see as full phlebotomists mm-hmm. and nurses why were you not interested in becoming a nurse
1: well, I was initially, well, I mean, again, because they were, that's who I saw, um, but I think for me, I, I, I kind of like the idea of the physician as kind of the team leader and someone who's able to be in a position to make the, to, you know, to, to be the decision maker and to determine courses of treatment. Um, it's just something that always appealed to me, and after I graduate, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. But after graduating undergrad and having spent um, a great part of my career so far working with physicians, I just see so much uh, that they're able to do as it relates to you know working within public health and kind of being that uh, clinician who who practices but is also able to be a real expert and is seen as uh, as an expert on on policy issues as well. Um, you know, from implementation of the Affordable Care Act, which you know will, I guess, remain intact in some in some ways, um, but all the way down to just um, you know, physicians who would come to the Hill and, and testify on any range of issues. Physicians that would would come to the office when I when I was on Capitol Hill, and um, just the expert the expertise that they had was right. was just always appealing to me. I like to know a whole lot and to be able to act on it. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, I've just seen that as, as, uh, as a way to be able to, to do that.
0: That sort of knowledge comes, I would assume later in life, as you learn more about healthcare and the different roles that people take when you're younger and you were looking at this, how did you decide that, that healthcare was even a path for you? Hmm.
1: Um, I think it just in general, I think it I just assumed it was in some ways mm. because so many people within my family uh, were engaged as healthcare care professionals in, in some way or uh, some fashion or, or another. But when I kind of knew that I could or I thought I could do it, um, that I would actually be successful was probably around middle school. Um, and I don't know how it, you know, it works at a lot of places, but in my middle school, they started you at around seventh grade, kind of doing the honors types of math classes and science classes where you really were just, um, like as a seventh grader, I took the eighth grade math and science classes. And I think that was kind of the first time, you know, that it, it seems like, and we also had, you know, career programs. And things like that, where they bring speakers in and they'd have you take uh, some of the aptitude tests that kind of told you what you might be good at and things like that. And so um, I think from just like a a very, can I do it? Is this something viable for me? Uh, It was probably middle school um, and and kind of getting tracked into some of the honors, math and science courses.
0: How do you how did you start exploring once you learned aptitude-wise that you like the classes, what what questions did you start asking yourself or who did you start asking questions to to, to figure out what your role could be in healthcare and, and getting that exposure to things?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so in middle school, just in terms of starting to try to just figure it out, uh, it was probably... Uh, a teacher who I actually still consider a a mentor, um Jeannie Owens, who at the time was a teacher at my middle school seventh and eighth grade center and um, actually just retired from from teaching um, and she had it was through this twenty first century's uh, pr- uh, program was a federal grantee program she established this you go girl uh, it was kind of like it was like an after school mentoring type program and this was kind of where we it was it was with a, a group of of middle school girls, and she it, it was designed to kind of help to transition you from from middle school into high school, and kind of how you uh, can providing skills to be able to work with the different pressures, uh, which include, sometimes at this age, a lot of young girls uh, will start to uh, kind of hide their intelligence. Um, and will kind of demure more uh, and, and especially in an area like where we grew up where there was often really defined gender roles. And so kind of through through that program um, I, I, is where I kind of started to explore a little bit and, and expressed interest and first kind of had that from a mentor perspective, um, support I, I think and encouragement to, to pursue medicine. And one of the things that we did was kind of research. You know, if I'm interested in in this, you know, how how can you? What what do you need to do to get there? So we had some girls who were interested in law school who have actually gone on to law school and have graduated and are, are lawyers now. For me, it was medicine, and so it really just started with with kind of that support, that that guidance to kind of start exploring. And then I just kind of went online. I remember in one of my math books, there was like this chart that said if you want to be a physician, this is how many years it takes, and it was like (laughs) twelve years at least. Um, But then, kind of expanded that, looking online at 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 just what what how do you become a physician, you know? And um, and uh, you know, part of it was was also looking at like study skills, which was another twenty first century program that I I worked with when I was uh, in middle school. And so that's kind of where I started to first ask the questions. When I got into high school, though, there were there were, um, you know, like the pre-health society type programs. um, It it wasn't pre-med at that point. Usually that's that's college. But we had uh, pre-health, pre-health professional um, like social groups, uh, you know, class school clubs. And so I participated in that. And um, in that club, I actually ended up uh, shadowing a cardiologist at, we had like a shadow day where they arranged for students to go to one of the hospitals um, in in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. And to shadow physician, so I got to spend an entire day, like in the cardiac cath lab with mm. with a cardiologist, and that's where I learned <laughs> that if you want to be, you know, hyper specialized, it takes even more than twelve years, and then you have to do things like fellowships and and the like. And so, um, but I still, you know, I, I so that that gave me kind of like an, an overall idea, um, but uh, I don't know the. the the yeah, I guess I guess that that's kind of where I kind of started to ask questions and started to really get an idea of what all it would take. Um, I was always interested, again, in, in kind of science and math. And so I knew that, you know, when I got to college, that's what I was going to major in. Um, but, yeah, I, I kind of started asking those questions as, yeah. as early as middle school. That's also when I knew that I was going to try to go outside of the state for college. <laughs> it was it was a decision I made in like eighth grade.
0: Through that time, learning about all of this stuff, you're uh, a, an African American female, mm-hmm. growing up in the mid east or Midwest, and Midwest. and you, you talked about these gender assignments already, gender roles. Did you ever face any negativity or um, doubt from other people on your journey that that questioned your? Your ability number one, and number two, your place to be a physician in this world I think that
1: the short answer is yes, um, but it it was it, it can be kind of insidious, you know it, it I would get questions like, "Are you sure that's what you want to do and and what about having kids and you know, um, men don't like it too much when their wives make more money than them, you know? So it was, it was, it, it, it was less, um, I mean, I had, I mean, I had experiences with, with teachers, um, broadly who, uh, you know, from time to time I could tell, you know, didn't think I, I don't know if they didn't think that I had the aptitude or or whether they just weren't going to take the time to kind of, uh, nurture it. Um, so I can definitely think of some, some a few teachers along the way where it just seems like I was just always on their bad side, It was never quite clear to me why. But in terms of uh, kind of directly discouraging me or or questioning my aptitude, not so much uh, not not so much directly. Um, but I definitely there were definitely voices who tried to you know instill in me fear that I wouldn't basically be able to have it all as a woman which is still something that is debated even amongst medical students residents uh et, et cetera um but but there was a lot of that you know yeah. um even my 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 grandmother who completely supports my decision to go to medical school and she's very very excited um but I remember a few years ago when I was telling her that you know after I had graduated and I was working but that I was still interested in going to medical school she tried to steer me towards being a nurse anesthetist because again, pointing towards the fact that, you know, I was married or I was like engaged at the time. And, you know, she wants me to give her some great grandbabies. <laughs> so, <laughs> and she thought that that would be a quicker way for me to actually be able to practice in, you know, in a, in a relatively lower stress environment and yeah. things like that. So.
0: So you, you have this decision to go to to be a physician, and it sounds like you you surrounded yourself well when you were younger. You started undergrad. Did, did you, starting undergrad, you were dead set on being a physician, and you, you did the whole pre-med route? Um,
1: I was pretty set on being a physician, and I did do the pre-med route. Uh, I I uh, so I, I majored in biology and, and minored in chemistry. I took all the prereqs for med school, um, and you know I I did pretty well uh, in most of my classes and, and graduated with honors and everything. And I was always interested in in medicine, uh, and that was my goal, primary goal in in going to uh, in in uh, you know when I was in college. But I got a couple of C's. And um, there was a saying on my campus, I'm sure that it was true on others, that this was also kind of the the advice that we got from our uh, pre-professional offices, which is that, you know, C's get degrees, but not M.D.'s. <laughs> and so I was, uh, you know, after my, what was that, second, well, after my, yeah, second semester sophomore year, so between sophomore and junior year, That's when I was really discouraged and where that's that's where the questioning of my aptitude kind of came into into play Um, and the discouragement that I essentially had ruined my academic chances of being accepted to medical school.
0: Why did you struggle? Um, Why do you think you struggled?
1: I I honestly think it was for me at that point, time management. So I have to, to give context. So my first semester freshman year, I got two C's. Um, I earned two C's, and one was in general chemistry, and the other was in calculus two. Probably shouldn't have taken the calculus two class, but that's another conversation. <laughs> um, but I was also I took I think it was 17 credits that semester. I was also in the marching band, which was a, an incredible commitment. Um, and I, I just think I kind of jumped into the deep end and hadn't quite I, I just didn't quite know what I was getting myself into. And then the second C came uh, second semester of my sophomore year, and that was in microbiology. So that was, you know, an upper level bio class, uh, considered an upper level bio class. And that is pretty much when when it was kind of suggested that med school probably wouldn't be an option. Um, But I think it boiled it really boiled down to to time management on my part Um, and not just not. you know, not prioritizing the way that I that I should have, as uh, I think you know, a lot of undergrads sometimes do.
0: It's a common mistake that that I see premeds make is they try to take on too much too soon. Mm-hmm. Do you think there was a, a learning curve there for you to learn how to be a undergraduate student, a college student versus a high school student, or do you think there was just too much on your plate with the classes that you were taking and being in the marching band?
1: Um, I th- I think there was probably a bit of a learning curve, one that I, I hope, I know that there will be transitioning to medical school too, just in terms of, you know, when I was in high school, to an extent in college, but especially in high school, like I didn't have to do a great deal of studying. When I was in high school, the reason I hesitated a little bit when you asked about if I knew med school was absolutely what I wanted to do. Uh, when I was in high school, I also participated in like speech and debate. I was in mock Congress, uh, as well as mock trial and, and banned. Um, so I was in a, a lot that, that was in addition to kind of the, the AP, you know, uh, Pre calc and calculus and chemistry and bio that I did. So I I always had like varied interests that I kind of always pursued. Um, and so when I got to college, I I think you know certainly I had to learn how to study a little bit differently to actually study intentionally. Um, but I think I also thought I could that having so much on my plate, I had juggled it all when I was in high school. I could juggle it all when I was in college and. Um, I was definitely mis- mistaken, particularly that first semester and, and you know, again, uh, when I was the, soft- the sophomore that second semester. Um, so, so I think it was a little bit of a combination of, of both, but I, I think that it was, I think I, I, get, I, uh, I, I just kind of shot myself in the foot there a little bit with, with taking on so much that first semester, thinking that, you know, it would, I could approach it the same as when I was in high school.
0: You said you got another c your sophomore year, and that's mm-hmm. where the discussions came up that that maybe medicine wasn't right for you were were these discussions that you were having with yourself or with a an advisor
1: um with the my advisor, I think I had like maybe one meeting with the advisor, and that was the advice that I received. but when I spoke to my peers, um they had all received pretty much the same advice and uh, and actually, I know a lot of people who, uh, to this day, have not tried to actually fully pursue medicine or dental school because of um, the same advice. Mm. So, it, it uh, yeah, it wasn't all in my head. It, and then the people that I knew that, that did, um, you know, follow through, they, for the most part, were, you know, straight A's, maybe a couple of B's. And so it it seems like that was being confirmed for me in what I saw around me.
0: Yeah, it's it's hard. It, it perpetuates this stereotype, especially when you see your peers, the, the ones that are getting the straight A's and doing well in classes, getting into medical school, at, and your advisors are saying, oh, you got a C or you got two C's, maybe Maybe you shouldn't be applying it it perpetuates this idea that you have to be a perfect student to be a physician, and that's just it's the wrong message that that we're sending to students, I think
1: I agree, and I know that now, <laughs> but <laughs> but I definitely I didn't know that then, and everywhere that I went you know um, or where I sought information out, you know it, it perpetuated that exact same myth
0: so you you obviously gave up on the dream a while. You graduated. You've been working in the healthcare world, but more from a policy political standpoint. What have you been doing these last several years?
1: So uh, after I graduated, I was ex- uh, I, I started this program that was a joint program between my, my alma mater, Howard University and Kaiser Family Foundation. Um, and it was called the Barbara Jordan Health Policy Scholars Program. And through this program, I, I served as a health policy scholar in a member of Congress's office, uh, who was actually the first physician elected to, con- first African American physician elected to Congress, who was also a woman. <laughs> um, and so, uh, so I spent the summer there, um, you know, working with her uh, on the. Uh, Energy and Commerce Health Subcommittee, which is was kind of the primary committee that was responsible at that point for overseeing the implementation of the Affordable Care Act. This was uh, just a few months after ACA had passed uh, back in 2010. And from there, I went to another member of Congress's office, uh, another uh, personal member office is what they call them. And I started as a staff assistant, but then kind of rose in the ranks uh, as a legislative staffer. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, in that office, I, I worked on health policy broadly, but I had a, a real interest. The member had a real interest. And so I was able to pursue uh, my interest in health disparities, so policies and public and, and, and really advocating for uh, funding for public health programs that serve to address health disparities. Um, so within African Americans, uh, Native American and American Indians, um, Asian American, and Pacific Islanders, or uh, were, were in, in Hispanic uh, Latinos were, were all uh, huge focuses for us. And so I worked there, I, I uh, staffed her or kind of led her portfolio for the Labor Health and Human Services Subcommittee on the Appropriations, House Appropriations Committee, uh, and uh, also her work on the Budget Committee. And um, so that kind of really opened my eyes to how, one, on the authorizing side, how laws are, are passed um, and how they're debated, you know, the process by which different things are attached to pieces of legislation that are ultimately passed or failed and why they may pass, and why they may fail. Um, but also on the appropriation side and the budgeting side, um, being able to look at how funding decisions are actually made, but also actually being able to kind of influence them as well. And because she was on on the the Labor HHS Subcommittee, you know, we really got to weigh in pretty forcefully on how federal dollars were were uh, directed to the federal government. And so, um, so I did that for four years, and from there uh, went to a nonprofit public health organization, which is where I am now. And we work with the HIV and AIDS directors at state and territorial health departments. Um, We're actually going to be expanding here pretty soon to to also work with CDC-funded local jurisdictions as well. Um, And then we also work with the viral hepatitis prevention coordinators at at also a state health departments. And um, within that position, I'm on the policy and legislative affairs in the hepatitis teams. And so we work to provide technical assistance on uh, implementing grants from the CDC that are specific to hepatitis prevention. Um, And we facilitate that in a a number of different ways um, from peer-to-peer technical assistance where we identify a state that another state might benefit from um, having kind of a mentorship type of uh, relationship with. But we also provide direct technical assistance in terms of identifying um, opportunities either via funding or um, opportunities to leverage programming um, within health departments or, or within other uh, governmental agencies uh, to be able to basically implement policies um, and programming that will help prevent hepatitis, but also serve the communities that are most disproportionately impacted by hepatitis. And so within this, I'm able to, one, pursue the appropriations work. I, I, I continue that work. Um, in terms of of advocating for funding for the Division of Viral Hepatitis at CDC, uh, but I also um, get the opportunity to really continue to work on on health disparities, which are pretty rife within within hepatitis. Um, and uh, so it's it's exciting work. It it can be very frustrating though, <laughs> um, because as I think your listeners will appreciate, we're in really historic times uh, as far as how <laughs> our government is currently structured and and, and it's functioning or perhaps not functioning. And so it, it, it makes one, the advocacy that much more important, but again, frustrating because, you know, the system, the process has to work, you know, in order to be able to, to, you know, direct funding where it needs to go. And, you know, we've, we've really the last several years been in a system where we're kind of barreling from, shut down to shut down or operating on continuing resolutions, which doesn't allow Congress to really um, take a look at individual programs and determine what we should continue funding and what we should no longer fund. And and to really be intentional about how we're appropriating money across the federal government uh, overall. And that has a real impact on people on the ground. Um, Especially when you're talking about labor programs, education programs, which all ultimately impact the whole health of an individual.
0: Again, I want to thank Cram Fighter for sponsoring this episode. First, let me tell you what Cram Fighter isn't. They are not an MCAT test prep company. I don't want you to think that just because you're already using Next Step Test Prep or Kaplan or any of the other MCAT test prep companies out there that you don't need Cram Fighter. Quite the contrary, Cramfighter works with these other test prep companies to help you create the perfect study plan for you. Even if you're studying on your own and you have all of the books, Fighter will help you create a plan. You log into the website, you tell Cramfighter what materials you're using, the test date that you're taking the test, when you're, you're starting to study and vacations that you need to take and how much time you have and it will create a custom schedule for you. There is a special offer just for you. Visit cramfighter.com to subscribe for 25% off any regular priced plan from right now until May 7th, 2017. Use the code PREMED25. That's all capital letters, PREMED25. You're having this huge impact on people, and, and helping people, right? The, the two main reasons people want to go into medicine, they, they love science and love helping people. You're out there, sounds like, really liking what you're doing, and you're having an impact on people. There is somebody listening right now that had a very similar path, I'm sure, of going to, to undergrad, wanting to be a doctor, getting those couple Cs and being told they can't do it, but they're out there enjoying their career like you are. What, what eventually led you to start thinking that you wanted to give medicine another shot?
1: So the very specific instance that led me to actually go back and register to take the MCAT and give it another go was actually a side visit that I did in in San Francisco. I was there for the annual liver meeting, um, which is this big conference uh, where where the liver docs come in. And um, we did a side visit at uh, the Tom Waddell Urban Health Clinic, which is uh, kind of managed by the San Francisco Department of Public Health. And, um, we had the opportunity to go and, and see where a physician who was actively treating um, a primary care physician who was treating people living with hepatitis who actually were were also co-infected with HIV. So these and, and had diabetes and other comorbidities. So these were pretty complex cases that, that and, and they were unstably housed or, or homeless. And so there were, um, you know, there were com- very complex cases. And. Uh, so while we were visiting, you know, she, you know, the the physician kind of, one gave us a, a tour of the facility and, and everything, and we got to see just the awesome work that they were doing there. But also we had the opportunity to, to meet with two of the patients that she had treated. And, you know, she was really talking about how, you know, her job as a physician, how she went through the screening process, how she really worked with them day to day and week to week to really get them to a place where they were uh, ready for treatment. And I'm, I'm kind of really paraphrasing here because with hepatitis, there's, there are a lot of, of, of barriers to treatment access. And so she worked with them for, for a while to, to get them to a place where they were ready for treatment and to a place where the state Medicaid would actually pay for treatment. And once they were treated, they just talked about how it, it provided motivation to um, get their HIV viral loads maintained and, and eventually suppressed, and how um, before there was no motivation to treat like their their diabetes, um, but but once they they had success on the hepatitis medications, they they were really motivated to to just really be able to to improve. It'd do what they could individually to to really improve these other health issues that they that they had. And I think it was kind of one of those times where I saw just up close and personal right in a health clinic, uh, all of these things that i I was interested in, all the reasons why I'd wanted to go to medical school in the first place, all of the policies I'd been advocating for on a federal level really come into sharp focus. and it I just left so motivated. And while I do enjoy the work that I do, you know, I've always wanted to treat patients. It's something that really never left my mind. But again, I just thought it was something that was just not possible for me. And so, but after, after my experience uh, during that side visit, it, it was just all I could think about. And when I got back to, to D.C., I think within like a week or so, I had uh, registered for the MCAT. And then I started looking for uh, support. Uh, for people who had been in a similar situation uh, that, that I was in and uh, eventually happened upon the podcast in opremeds.org.
0: Why register for the MCAT as your first step? Why not go back to your advisors at school or, or seek out new advisors and say, hey, am I crazy for doing this or what do I need to do? Why, why the MCAT first?
1: Well, one, I didn't want to be discouraged anymore. (laughs) And, um, you know, that was, and, 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 you know, I had reached, you know, I had had some conversations with the uh, pre-professional office at at my alma mater after graduating. Um, And again, just didn't quite feel like I was getting good guidance. Um, But that had been, a a few years had passed before I, a couple of years anyway, I think about two, a little more than two years had passed before I, I had the side visit and then went ahead and, and, uh, and registered. So I didn't want to be discouraged. And I also wanted to put my feet to the fire and really hold myself accountable. Now that probably isn't the best way to do it, to just go ahead and just throw money at a test and, uh, and hope things work out. But I, I just wanted, I just didn't want an out. I didn't want another out. I knew this is what I wanted to do. And I had the prereqs, and so and I had a, a strong GPA uh, from undergrad, and so um, most of what I had read about post um, and S and P's seemed to be for people who needed grade repair. And ultimately, you know, there wasn't any really replacing that microbiology grade. And and oh, aside from that, my science GPA and uh, under and cumulative GPA were pretty solid. So, um,
0: and I so like. I liked the, that thought of not wanting another out. And I've, I've talked about it on this podcast, don't have a plan B. And so as soon as you came back and, and you clicked on register and spent your couple hundred bucks for the MCAT, you said, I don't have a plan B. This is what yeah. I want to do. What, yeah. what, what did it feel like to, to do that? Oh, it was
1: nerve wracking. I was, um, I mean, although I guess the last, you know, year and a half for me have, has been pretty nerve wracking, but I was incredibly nervous. And, um, you know, my husband knew that I wanted to go to medical school. He's hes always known that that was the goal. We met my freshman year in college. We've been friends for, you know, 11 years now. And so he knew that that was always my goal, but I didn't even tell him. I was, you know, it was very much one of those things where it was, I, I, was, I was nervous and I was anxious and, and, and I was afraid of failing. And I wasn't sure if I wanted anyone to know if I did fail. And so those are kind of all of the thoughts that were going through my head that I, I really wanted to do this. I wanted to follow, follow through and, and hold myself accountable, but I was also terrified of failing.
0: What was the the toughest part of going through this process as as a non-traditional student, somebody working full-time and and figuring out what you needed to do to apply and pulling your applications together, what was the hardest thing, do you think?
1: So probably... So from, from a mental perspective, I think it was just hard to maintain confidence because, you know, having been discouraged, um, and having been in a state of discouragement for, for so long, you know, mentally there was, there was a, there were a number of nights where I just did not think it was going to be possible for me. Um, but, but also the time, um, being able to you know, I want to say time management, but but also there are only 24 hours in a day. <laughs> and I work in a, in a job where it, ha- it, it it's it's a pretty good work-life balance. I don't have too many complaints there, but it can be demanding. You know, I, I travel um, for my job at times and I have to prepare for conferences and, and presentations in addition to just the day-to-day work. And so I was spread pretty thin. Um, and so just actually having um being alert uh, be, being able, trying to be alert and stay awake enough hours to 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 actually study for the MCAT was really really difficult um trying to study when i was on planes or in a hotel room and things like that were uh proved difficult at at enough, at, at, at times
0: what led to your success on the MCAT or maybe a perceived failure on your part if you didn't get <clears> the score you wanted
1: So I did not get the score that I wanted. Um, But I think, you know, if I had to do it over again, um, the one thing I would do differently is I would probably try to have a conversation with my husband about quitting my job. And ultimately, you know, I probably would have quit my job and just... Dedicated full time study to the MCAT. Like if you know if I if I would have reached the end of this cycle um, and had been unsuccessful, I was leaving my job and I had already had a conversation with my supervisor. Now I'm in a very supportive environment that understood that this was what my career goal was, and so I was able to have I think a little bit more of a frank conversation than perhaps uh, some people may be able to have. But I had made up in my mind that that I was no longer going to work full time and that I was going to dedicate um, all of my time, you know, outside of my protected time with my husband, all of my other time was going to be towards getting into medical school. So that's, that's the thing that I would have done differently. I think that that, um, that, uh, really, you know, I think that it impacted my grade. Um, and again, I, you know, I enjoy what I do, but, but it can be demanding at times. Um, and, you know, so that that's, that's one thing that I would have done differently. I, I, that I think, you know, was a huge impact was, was just not having enough hours in the day. And a lot of the studying that I did, I was doing it when I was exhausted after just, a, you know, at least an eight hour day at work and then, you know, a 45 minute to an hour commute home uh, each way. And so it, it uh, you know, I think that that's what I would. That that's that's what contributed to. I, that's what I think contributed to to my perhaps not doing as well as as I wanted, um, and and I would definitely do that. Would have done that differently if if I would have had to retake the MCAT, and it, go through this process again. It
0: sounds like a recurring theme from the start of your undergrad with time management issues and a, your mm-hmm. applications and MCAT prep with time management issues and and I wouldn't say maybe time management but just commitment issues or commitment. Mm-hmm. Uh, overextending yourself, maybe. Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, that's. I've uh, you know perhaps been told that <laughs> once <laughs> or twice that I I have a tendency to stretch myself. Then you know when I first started working with you, I was also. Um, so I've I've focused a lot on work, you know, on the work aspects, but I was also. Uh, an officer in my sorority on both our local level and our state level, mm-hmm. and I was engaged in our regional conferences and I would you know do occasional trainings on social action and and things like that. I was very involved. Um, I was also part of like our undergraduate advisory committee <laughs> so <laughs> um, and a, a couple other things as well and so you know that's one of the first things you told me to do was like something has to give. And so I took a huge step back from uh, from from my sorority, and uh, and hey, it's still there. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and you know, now <laughs> that I'm, I'm I'm kind of past this process, I'm starting to re-engage in things. And you know, at, at least in turn, I'm not in, in, on any leadership positions. But but you know, if I've got you know a little bit of time here or there, um. But uh, but yeah, it, it it I tend to to I think bite off a little bit more than I can um, and it's tough because, you know, even, even as I'm saying this, I was still ultimately successful in, in my med school application and, I, and I've gotten an ex- acceptance at a school I'm pretty excited about, but, um, and I think I've learned my lesson. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm planning to devote myself <laughs> fully to studying come the fall. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it, it, I, I tend to I tend to, to try to multitask probably a whole lot more than I should. And I've read that, you know, humans can't actually truly multitask yeah. anyway.
0: It's called, it's called task switching, up. not multitasking.
1: Exactly. So, so something ends up uh, falling through the cracks eventually.
0: You mentioned that, that you have an acceptance to medical school. What do you think led to having a, a successful application and interview and uh, your ability to to tell a story that you wanted being a non-traditional student and talking about the struggles with your MCAT and and early classes with those few C's even though your GPA ended up okay.
1: Um I well I mean I, I first of all I have a lot of stories <laughs> that I, I wanted to tell and I tried to cram them all into my personal statement, um, which didn't work. <laughs> and um, so, so honestly working with you and, and, you know, um, really crafting, you know, what were some of the highlights and, and really trying to just hit, hit on those highlights to to tell the story of, of really how I had come to the decision and, and, and why medicine was so important to me. Um, in the course of my actual uh, interview, um, my grades did not come up a single time, nor did my MCAT. And they were, so I actually had two interviews with three interviewees, interviewers. Um, the first was actually with the, uh, the chair of the admissions <laughs> committee. So that was, I was incredibly nervous during that, but he was more interested in, in kind of like those generic why medicine, um, types of questions. Uh, you know, how did you come to this decision? What type of position do you want to be? Which I kind of bungled, but, you know, I guess it worked out. Um, and he wanted to know kind of what I was currently working on and what I'd be working on, um, over the next, you know, several months. Uh, but then that, that second interview all they were interested in was exactly what my story was, what, you know, the work that I had done working on policy, working in Congress. What were my thoughts on uh, the ACA and ACA repeal? What What were my thoughts on uh, the the debate around drug pricing and, you know should the federal government come in and regulate the prices of drugs and you know what about the scientists and the pharmaceutical companies that have invested so much time and money into you know you know R&D and 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 the like and so i think um once you know once i once i actually got in front of The people who would be making the admissions decisions, um, I was, you know, they weren't, you know, I, I I guess my numbers passed muster uh, enough for them to invite me. And and once I was there, they were just really interested in in me. And you had told me that that was going to be the case, (laughs) but, um, you know, it it it, that really was uh, the case. And and so, um, because I had, uh, you know, I had crafted the story and spent so much time, you know really getting comfortable talking about myself uh it it was it's always been pretty easy for me to 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 advocate for others and to kind of do my job and advocacy but the advocating for myself part um it it proves it it, it took a lot of work and practice for me and but once I got there that's that's what they were interested in and so I I just uh I just focused on that and um it, it was interesting because one of my interviewers was actually, he, he does pharmacology and, and, and so there was definitely, you know, we got into, it wasn't a debate, but it was, a, it was an interesting conversation around, you know, the altruism of, you know, of of wanting to make sure that people have access to drugs versus, you yeah. know, what I would say the profit motive, but it was, it was, uh yeah, it, it, I was, and, and, you know, I applied to a lot of schools and I was rejected from a whole lot of schools. So, you know, I'm sure that there are schools that really cared a lot about, you know, my very average MCAT, you know, and the fact that I finished my prereqs, like almost 10 years prior. Um, But, but ultimately I didn't apply to any school that I wouldn't have been excited to to go to um, based on what I knew about the school. And I think that I ended up, you know, really at a place that values my experiences and what I have to bring uh, to the incoming class. And I feel like I, I, I really knew that that would be the case if I was accepted based on the interview and the questions that they asked me. They seemed really interested in me and my story.
0: They seemed really interested in you. And yet you lost a lot of confidence going through the process waiting talk about what it was like to leave that interview and then wait for any word from them
1: um so this is the second hardest part that i never would want to revisit in the application process was that wait and I I have a reputation uh, amongst my friends and acquaintances of being uh, fairly cerebral. Um this is, was is the term one of my friends used. I can get in my head a lot. I think and I overthink. Uh, that was probably also an issue for me on the MCAT. But I tend to really really overthink things. And so when I left, I think I I sent you an email where I I said you know I'm 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 so, I'm pretty confident there were you know there were a couple of things I. Kind of wasn't so sure about, but I'm pretty confident. But then the more that I just thought, like I just rehashed both of the interviews in my head over and over again, and and I was like, no way they're going to, no way they're going to take me. Um, to give you an idea, one of the questions that the the chair of the admissions committee asked me was, um, you know, again, what what type of physician do you want to be? And I said primary care physician, and he was like, yes, but I mean, you know, family medicine or. Or, you know, do you want to work with PDS? Do you want to work with kids? And I was like, uh, not the one that works with kids. Not the one that works with kids. (laughs) And then it was like, internal medicine. And I was like, that's it. And and, um, again, I was super nervous. But I just remember thinking, oh, he thinks I'm a complete idiot. And I couldn't even articulate, you know, which specialty I I was interested in. No way. No way would he then advocate on the committee um, for, for my acceptance. And, you know, what ended up making me feel even less confident was the way that, that my school does it is, you know, after the interviews, they'll, they rank everyone. And so if you kind of fall within your score at the very, very top um, of the list, where they can pretty much make a pretty solid assumption that after everyone is ranked, you would still be accepted, they go ahead and accept you. So th- they say that's usually only a few people. And then they reject the people who are at like the very lowest end of the of the ranking. And then everyone else gets their decision essentially deferred or their own hold until March. And so once I did once January hit, which is when they told us we could expect, um, you know, at least those preliminary letters. Um, and I got that letter and I opened it and they said that, uh, my decision was on hold until March. I just knew for sure at that point. I was like, "Well, at least that's not a rejection." <laughs> we had yeah. lots of, you know, at least it's not a rejection. But um, it it just really felt like it was inevitable, you know. And the more, the further away I got from the interview, and the more, well, rejection from other schools that I received, uh, and the more that I just rehashed the interviews over and over and over again. Um, there was one question I kept harping on from from the interviewer who was uh, who also was in the pharmacology department where he asked me about the science of the new drugs that are coming out to address the hepatitis C virus. And I gave him a pretty good answer. I, I, well, I think now I know. I think my answers are pretty good. But um, at the time when I was kind of in this in this window of of weighing the sea, I was like, oh, I probably didn't answer that right. I talked about the genotyping, but I really should have talked about like how the drug actually attacks the virus. Like why do they call it a direct acting antiviral? And so like all of these things were, you know, the more that I rehashed the interviews in my head, the less confident I became. And um, so that, that was, and I, and in fact, I think like a couple of weeks, you know, maybe a month or so before I ended up getting the acceptance, I even emailed you and was like, um, there's no way I'm getting accepted. I'm going to have to like apply to post and like, or maybe I'll get a master's or, and I'm going to have to go through this whole process again. And I'm going to have to retake the MCAT. And you were just like, you have to slow down, breathe. It's not over yet. And, um, you know, which was really helpful.
0: So you're going to have, I'll, I'll give you some, some med student advice mm-hmm. with the type of person you are. And, and for you listening to this, if you are the same type of person, med school is going to destroy you because you're going to come out of every test and you're going to go through every question in your head be like, oh, I did that one wrong, I did that one wrong, I did that one wrong, I'm so dumb, I'm so stupid, why am I here, I can't do this, and then you're going to get your score back and get like a 95. <laughs> so that's, that's typically, the, I mean, it, it seems like the majority of students are like that, that, that make it to this point and get into medical school that we, we love to question everything and doubt everything, but just have to trust yourself at the end of the day.
1: Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, uh, and I'll say this, um, I'm a very anxious person and, and just in general, I, I, my grandmother has called me worrisome since I was like 12. Um, I, I, it, it is definitely my personality, but I, I, I will, and this may be sharing too much, but you know, I collaboration, right. Um, I actually intend to like work with the counseling office, honestly, um, pretty much to connect with them as soon as I get to the campus, because I know that I can lose myself in my head sometimes just with, with the doubt and second guessing and things like that. And so I've, you know, I've already just kind of tried to make some plans in terms of just how I'll be able to cope with myself and, you know, my my own self doubt. And so, you know, I've, I've like connected to, um, to people who are currently on campus and things like that just to make sure that I am connected to some support services that will, you know, help me manage. And so I, you know, I, I, I do agree that that is, you know, I, I don't want to lose myself to my anxiety and and all of my second guessing, but I I do, I I tend to be very, very, very cerebral.
0: Yeah, no, it's good. It's good to know yourself Mm -hmm. and and know the help that you need and and be okay seeking out that help. So that's good. Mm So Mariah, as we wrap up here, what words of wisdom do you have for the student listening that is doubting their self on their journey, getting feedback from their advisor that they shouldn't be going to med school because of their grades in certain classes? What what would you tell the the student listening?
1: I would say, you know, if you know that this is what you want to do in medicine, is what you wake up in the morning thinking about, and it's constantly on your mind. I know it was for me, even even in the seven years between when I graduated and now, um, I thought about medicine constantly. If this is what you want to do, don't allow anyone to discourage you. Um, you know, just make a commitment and and really put your best foot forward and, and pursue it. Um, and you know, and I would also say, really examine. Uh, particularly for, for the non-traditional student who may have a whole lot on your plate, really take a step back and just look at what all commit what, what commitments you have and ask yourself uh, the question that that you asked me, Dr. Gray, which is, you know, how is this contributing to you getting into medical school? You know, what what story, you know, what how can you talk about this experience in a way that you can connect it back to your ultimate goal of getting into medical school? And um, and so and and then I would focus on ensuring that that those are the things that that you're pursuing, particularly if you're if you're very tight on time, uh, as as I was and tend to be. Uh, you know, it it takes it's a great it's a huge commitment monetarily, but also as far as time is concerned. And you know, if you can if you can knock it out, uh, you know, in in one go, <laughs> you know, that then I think that that would
0: be a good goal to have. All right, there you have it. Then again, that was Mariah sharing her story of ultimate success, gaining acceptance to medical school after many years of, of working outside of the pre-med world, obviously going and working in Washington, D.C., working on the Hill, giving people that didn't have a voice a voice, lobbying and doing all of that advocacy work, and ultimately realizing that becoming a physician was her ultimate goal. And now she has that opportunity with an acceptance. I want to thank a few people that have left us ratings and reviews. First one, Josie Twelver says, must listen to. You just have to listen to all of them, starting from the first one. Thank you for that review, We have another one here from Ber-something King, (laughs) Bercher-Ker-King, that says, truly informative and helpful podcast. I'm a non-traditional student in every possible way, and this podcast has helped so much in putting to rest some of my fears and concerns. I really enjoy the podcast on DO versus MD and the stories of people who have gone a non-traditional route awesome. Thank you for that review. If you would like to leave us a review, you can do so at medicalschoolhq.net slash iTunes. Again, medicalschoolhq.net slash iTunes. If you have any suggestions for podcast ideas or topics, shoot me an email, ryan at medicalschoolhq.net. I hope you had a great week. I want to thank Cram Fighter again for sponsoring. Use the code PREMED25, save 25% off on cram fighters services now through may 7th again pre-med 25 all capital letters have a great week we'll see you next week here at the pre-med years